Is that a strategy? Is it workable? Is it feasible in Memphis to continue to reclaim that blues, jazz, gospel history and the art and culture that were so prominent and that came out of Memphis? Can that be a driver for revitalization? And is it a driver? I mean, I believe so because my whole work, my whole being, if if I said no, then I should leave right now <laughs> because <laughs> I believe that arts and culture can actually transform and be part of a neighborhood's revitalization, a community's revitalization, and in the case of Memphis, a city's revitalization. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today's podcast is an amazing conversation my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis, had at the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference earlier this year. It's a conversation about the arts, inclusion, placemaking, and community revitalization. So this morning, we have the privilege of speaking to two wonderful women, Ms. Linda Steele, who is the founder and CEO of Art Up, based in Memphis, Tennessee, formerly Chief Engagement Officer of Arts Memphis, and Ms. Roseanne Weiss, Director of Artists and Community Initiatives for the Regional Arts Commission here in the beautiful city of St. Louis. Thank you, ladies, for making some time out of your conference schedule to be a part of this podcast for Infinite Earth Radio. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. So this is such an interesting conversation because you all are working on practical strategies for developing and empowering inclusive creative placemaking initiatives through art and artistry. I think that the work that you are doing is so powerful, but often does not get the kind of policymaking support or grant-making support to make the kinds of investments that could really help communities turn around. So I'm really privileged that you agreed to join us this morning. Just to let you know a little bit about sort of my interest in this work. So in elementary school in New York and Harlem, my art teacher for the first six years of my life was Faith Rangel. Oh. Um, and she was a working teacher, a New York City public school arts teacher. And I had the privilege of being her student from kindergarten to fifth grade. Wow. And it really framed my worldview about how I see issues, how I see art. She was a part of the black arts movement. Mm -hmm. As elementary school kids, we didn't know what she was dragging us to see. But decades later, it's still so much a part of my consciousness. So the power power of art to transform a life and transform a community is there. And today I serve on the board of the Smithsonian Anacostia Community Museum. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing, we are trying to do in the District of Columbia, east of the river, which is sort of the forgotten part of D.C. So I very much resonate with what, you're, what you are trying to do. But I do want you all to talk about what is the work on the ground in Memphis, what is the work in St. Louis? How do you see those efforts coming together? You two clearly work together a lot. What do you work together on? So it, in St. Louis, the Community Arts Training Institute is part of the Regional Arts Commission. And this is really where the base of our work happens. 
So we really believe that people need training. When you go to art school, they aren't necessarily, no matter what kind of art school, theater, music, visual art, they're necessarily talking about working within communities. But so many artists want to be able to be part of their communities and to be able to spur creativity and, and change through their work. So about 20 years ago, we started something called the Community Arts Training Institute, and you'll hear us talk about CAT. Uh-huh. So it's community arts training. Uh-huh. So when we talk about cat or cats, who are the alums, that's who we're talking about. Uh-huh. And believe me, the puns are never ending. So, But we believe that it should be cross-sector. And that has been the beauty at the Regional Arts Commission of the Cat Institute in that it's been cross-sector. So we train not only artists of all disciplines, but we train their community partners as well. So social workers, community activists, teachers, politicians have all gone through the Cat Institute. And we now have 350 alumni working within our community. Wow. Linda? And my work really started at Arts Memphis, and I believe there was a need there in terms of seeing some issues along the lines of racial, cultural, social equity in arts grant making. Mm -hmm. And so I arrived in Arts Memphis in 2014 to lead some efforts to address some of the issues that people were seeing. So one of the things that I created was a fellows program, very similar to the CAT program in St. Louis, is before we're ever able to issue or award any grants, people need to understand what they're doing in terms of things like community engagement, arts-based community engagement, creating partnerships with specifically underserved, disinvested neighborhoods, communities. Like Roseanne said, you just can't walk into a neighborhood and do that work. And as far as funders, we can't just, you know, give out money and expect our grantees to do that work. Mm -hmm. So I launched a program called the Fellows Program, where the first couple of years, it was primarily arts and cultural organizations, arts managers at some of the large arts and cultural institutions, and then some of the smaller ones, but so that they could learn what this field was all about. They could hear from thought leaders in the city and from around the country. And then also just to be introduced to the two pilot neighborhoods where we were starting the work Mm -hmm. and really creating some partnerships among and between the neighborhoods and the artists and the arts administrators so that they could actually have a conversation. They went through listening campaigns and walking tours so that this could be something that was organic. And so when they came up with projects, it was really a partnership between people who lived in the neighborhood and an arts and culture manager. Mm -hmm. But now it's at the point where it's more equitable and inclusive. So we have individuals who live in disinvested neighborhoods, challenged neighborhoods Mm -hmm. in the city of Memphis, as well as independent artists, as well as arts managers. Mm -hmm. So let's take a step back for a moment. I should have started by asking you both about where you're from and what has been your path that you followed to where you are today and what you do today. What was that that path like for you in your own lives? Would you want to start, Linda? Sure. Originally, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I was involved in the arts as a participant. You know, I've taken lessons and all that stuff, piano lessons, violin lessons, 
art, uh, visual art, dance, and I want to... We look like we're around the same age. This is what our parents used to do for us, and we didn't really have a lot of choice about it. So hopefully you <laughs> learned to love it, right? But our parents put us in, in these spaces, right? Exactly. I went to college in Massachusetts, really have spent most of my career either in education, working specifically with at-risk communities or in the arts. And so in the arts, I've been able to work in the performing arts with, you know, theater, usually the administrative side, a museum. I've worked in arts education organizations, Chicago and New York, and came to Memphis really because I had heard someone say, if you really want to make a difference, move to Memphis. And I really did. And I really do. And that's what keeps me there and doing this type of work, because it's an opportunity for me to really work on the social impact and economic impact mm -hmm. side of the art and really push toward racial and cultural equity and inclusion in the arts. So, Roseanne, what was your journey? So, so my personal journey is that I am a native St. Louisan and I grew up in the city of St. Louis and am very, very conscious of the divide in our town. So for me personally, as a child, the St. Louis Art Museum was a respite for me. And as a teenager, I'd get on the bus and spend hours there, literally hours. So it was where I was the most comfortable and where I felt at home. So understanding that the arts are a home for people, that they are, that it's welcoming, that, that no one ever bothered me, that it was just fine to be there. And lots of people, all kinds of different people were there. And you could talk to anybody about the work that was on the wall and people would be in, engaged. As a teenager, that was my introduction. As an adult, we are people of a certain age, and I was very politically active. And that political activism and my love of art married at some point. I worked for something called the Forum for Contemporary Art that has now morphed into the Contemporary Art Museum. And my job as the program and education director there was to open, literally open the doors of that institution to the community, that, that we wanted to be a community active institution, that the art was for all. And so as the education director, we did all kinds of amazing, wonderful programs. And one of the ones I'm most proud of was a program for teenagers called New Art in the Neighborhood, which actually still exists. It was meant to be an opportunity for teenagers to work in a way that they've never worked before. So every people like Carol Walker, for instance, who were showing at the art museum would do workshops with my teenagers. So it was an amazing opportunity for them and an amazing opportunity for me to learn and grow. I've been with the Regional Arts Commission now for 13 years, and I came there because of the Community Arts Training Institute. And we've expanded it a lot. It's been really important for us to be able to take what we do and morph it and change it and evolve it. I think everybody knows that Ferguson is 20 minutes from where we're sitting. And during the Ferguson Uprising, the Cat Institute alums were on the ground. And they were ready. And the reason that they were ready is that it's a cross-sector training. Okay. So no one had to find anybody. They knew each other. They knew who was there. They knew what was going on. And so that really, for me, is, is one of the most important parts of what we're doing, is that people are ready, and they're trained, and they have connections, and there's collaborations that are going on all the time. So given that you are a native St. Louisan, Mm -hmm. and you are based in Memphis. These are both two cities, as you 
both just said, who have a history Mm -hmm. of racial separation, Mm -hmm. racial tension, racial violence, and are, I think, at a crossroads, both places, in terms of what the future is and could be. What do you think is the role for the work that you do in healing those tensions in creating stronger community, the intentional placemaking that you do around art um, and culture, what do you think is the role to really help mend and build stronger, more, more vibrant, holistic communities where people see themselves as part of the same place? Well, in Memphis, I'm not sure people know this, but Memphis is considered the poorest city, major city in the, in the nation. Hmm. And also it has one of the poorest, if not poorest, zip codes in the nation. So there's a lot of segregation in terms of not only you know racial and cultural segregation, but certainly socioeconomic mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so the neighborhoods that I work with, and specifically, I, I always tell people now, my lane is all about poor And when you're in Memphis, poor black community. And so how can they get a piece of this creative placemaking pie? And so training them so that they can understand what this field is all about and getting the tools so that they can have a place at the table, a seat at the table, and to be able to negotiate when it comes down to grant monies and opportunities, and also proving, and I think, because I think it's a very bold statement to say that arts and culture can actually address issues and challenges such as poverty, unemployment, blight, and crime. And so we're showing this by working in the middle of one of Memphis's most challenged neighborhoods where unemployment is higher than the city's unemployment rate, which is also very high, something mm-hmm. where the blight, level of blight is phenomenal and where the crime is also very high. This is not something, you know, this is not simply just adorning some blighted, abandoned building and saying, oh, look at this pretty space and look what we did. Mm-hmm. This is really about how can it address this issue. One of the first, and to top that off, make sure that the work actually impacts and benefits that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Money has to go to the people who live in that the work about Art Up is that we believe that the people who are most impacted by this work need to benefit from it and they need to be leaders of the work. And so, for example, there's been a liquor store in the Orange Mound neighborhood. Orange Mound was founded in 1890. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the country's first African-American communities mm-hmm. And specifically created for African-Americans so that they could own their own homes. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about it, back in 1890, this is where uh, former slaves were actually had an opportunity to purchase their own home. And then now in 2017, there's high unemployment, high blight, uh, high crime rates. And it's just the exact opposite of what it was during its really heyday in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. How can art help to change that? And one of the things we've done is a, there was a liquor store for many, many, many years in this neighborhood. And 
it attracted loitering and crime and it closed down and then it was a vacant storefront in a strip mall shopping mall in the middle of this neighborhood and so some residents had identified this space as something that they wanted to change they actually wanted some control of this space and so together those the residents came to me and then i actually brought in an artist and it was as one of the residents called the dream team that got together and really helped transform this liquor store into now what is an art gallery, a um, flex art space, and a community gathering space. And this Saturday, there's a new exhibition opening, which is some of Memphis's most esteemed African-American artists are opening an exhibition on Saturday, which is kind of Black History Month Mm 2.0, and with images that are not the standard traditional images of Black history. Mm -hmm. And so this gallery is is really to help benefit the neighborhood. So it is theirs. And what the challenge is to make sure that this gallery is, once again, for us, by us, near us. Mm -hmm. And so every time I think about the work, I'm always challenging myself with, you know, how does it benefit them? And then also making sure that people know that it's not my thing, that I'm providing technical assistance, I'm providing support, I'm providing expertise and consultancy, but I want to pass the baton. So the big vision is for the community to own this work Mm -hmm. and for it to be sustainable Mm -hmm. and for it to create jobs, reduce blight, and and eliminate crime. Mm -hmm. Roseanne, you mentioned the Ferguson uprising and It just, to me, is such a touchstone of and and so emblematic of the challenges that St. Louis has experienced over the last half century. Dramatic loss of population, huge sprawl. So, you know, the counties around St. Louis that orbit around St. Louis are so far afield now, but they reflect the challenges of a bygone era still to this day, right? That's where you see it is in the suburbs. And Ferguson is a suburb of of St. Louis. But I wonder if people still feel a sense of kinship about the city of St. Louis, that St. Louis is still the center of the universe, as it were, in this metropolitan area, and if they can still be connected. If is and is art the thing and culture the thing that helps people to see themselves as connected to this place? It's a hard question to answer. I think that there is a lot of similarity between what Linda is talking about with Memphis and with St. Louis. There are so many neighborhoods that have been disinvested in, so many neighborhoods where you can walk through and there are people who have lived there all their lives, but they're living next to, it may be the only house in the block. Mm -hmm. That kind of disinvestment in our neighborhoods is really problematic for revitalizing those neighborhoods, right? When we are working within the arts, you know, one of the things we say is this is not the panacea. It is it's part of the picture of how neighborhoods can be repurposed and revitalized. And I think that the people who live there, one of my problems with talking about creative placemaking always mm-hmm. is that the place is already there. You know, it, it, we have the privilege of working with people who are in that place already. Mm-hmm. And and to create a sense of belonging is, is, is what the folks that live there are trying to do. And I think that that's what you're getting at. Exactly. Is, is how do people feel 
like they belong. And in, in St. Louis, of course, the core of many of our biggest arts institutions are in the city itself. And the big question, of course, about those institutions is who feels welcome and are the doors open? You know, what does that mean to have equity? And Regional Arts Commission is a funder, so we often talk about the equity of our funding. Mm-hmm. And and these are big issues, and we're not going to be able to mm-hmm. answer them here today, mm-hmm. but they are big issues, and they are part of this larger conversation Absolutely. about the arts within communities. There's a wonderful example that has, that has been around for about five years and called the Pink House, which is in the Pagedale neighborhood, which is very near Ferguson, and it's a North County neighborhood like Ferguson a small township. There's 92 municipalities in St. Louis. And, <laughs> and Yes, part of the challenge. Right? Yes, it's totally all those of, municipalities. Right, part of the challenge. But Pagedale, there, the Pink House was or is owned by a housing corporation and an artist named Gina Martinez has been embedded in there for five years. Mm-hmm. And she has done this really beautiful, slow relationship building arts project. And an and arts project isn't the right term for it. It's become a place, it's like the arts next door, right? On the way home from school, the kids stop in and there's, there's activities and there's literacy and there's art making and there's all kinds of things. There are classes for the adults in the pink house. It's a small place. It's, you know, the living room is the size of the room we're sitting in. Mm-hmm. But it's become a really powerful symbol of what can happen when the community owns something. Mm-hmm. And, and it's arts-based. It's mm-hmm. creative. It's a place for people to express themselves and be who they are, create a safe haven, all those kinds of things. Whenever I think of the Pink House, I think of myself as a little girl finding a safe haven in the art museum. And, and I had to get on a bus and get there. The kids in this neighborhood can go to the Pink House. It's in the middle of the block. Mm-hmm. And I always think about Pink Houses in every neighborhood, right? Can we do that? There's no reason why we can't do that. In the city of St. Louis, there are empty houses in every neighborhood. Yeah. And we could do that. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing that I think we're all working towards, is how, how is the art simply part of our life and not separate and becomes a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. So if they're looking for some major donors, they might want to reach out to Jay-Z, the rapper, and Mogul. He grew up in a development called the Pink Houses in East New York and Brooklyn. Notorious public housing development, but lots of people who came out of there went on to do great things called the Pink Houses. So, you know, maybe there's I some, know that, so some, I some affinity that there. <laughs> I wanted to sort of ask you both about different initiatives. So Infinite Earth Radio is sponsored by consulting firm Skio Solutions, where my colleague Lynette and I work. And we've been working on a project here in St. Louis in the Wells Goodfellow community with St. Louis Department of Urban Planning and Design. And it's a major stormwater infrastructure effort. You know, there's millions, millions of dollars being spent in St. Louis to revamp and upgrade the stormwater system and the sewer systems, particularly in Wells Goodfellow that for decades has experienced persistent flooding and and sewer back backup. But so they're gonna they're gonna do a lot of green space transformation with all this vacant property that's over there. And they're working with the community to design what that space is like. But it seems like there's a real role for the Arts Commission of St. Louis and the stuff that you are doing to be a part of that effort. And I, I say that when this conference, New Partners for Smart Growth, was in Kansas City a few years ago, I went on a mobile tour to the 18 and Vine Jazz District. And I'm going to circle back to you, Linda, to, to, to talk about some of the strains of that for Memphis. 
Memphis and, and the Mississippi Delta. And I don't think I have ever seen a better capturing of history, of rendering in time of an extraordinary place that Kansas City used to be. And in my mind, being from New York and from Harlem, I, you know, I can hear the songs, right? I can hear the music that my parents listened to. But I was so startled to see how little of that part of Kansas City still existed, right? And so they had to preserve a part of it or nobody would ever know about these jazz crossroads and the blues and all this great music that came out of Kansas City. But it is an extraordinary piece of placemaking and historic and cultural preservation to drive community reinvestment. Do you think that the work that you do could be married with this urban vitality and ecology is, uh, initiative in the Wells Goodfellow community to, to be a part of that revitalization? Of course it can. I mean, it, it, it takes planning and it, take, it takes finding the right people to be the right stakeholders, people who want to come together and work together. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't ever think those things are difficult to do. Mm -hmm. I think you can always find the right people who are interested. You know, I, when you talk about Kansas City, I'm thinking of a neighborhood here that we have been working with very closely with our CAT Institute alums who are part of that neighborhood, the Ville mm -hmm. and the Greater Ville, mm -hmm. which is an amazing history. It's an amazing history. And it, it was a traditional, traditionally African-American neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Chuck Berry lived there. Tina Turner lived there. Grace Brumbry lived there. Arthur Ashe lived there. You know, I mean, you can go on and on mm -hmm. about the history. But but they're very afraid that the history is being lost because, again, it's a neighborhood that's been disinvested in. So we, one of the things that we have been doing lately is been doing specifically neighborhood-based community arts training institutes in which the people, the 16 people that we take in each institute are from a particular neighborhood in some way, shape, or form. And again, cross-sector, both artists and, and community activists. Mm -hmm. And our next neighborhood is The Ville. So we are we are very excited to be invited into the Ville. They mm -hmm. have collaboratives that meet, and we've been meeting with them. We've been trying to meet with people in the neighborhood. We've been trying to meet with the historians. And we hope that, that you know, we're not coming in saying we're going to be have the solution for you, but we're, we're coming in saying we have a resource, which is this training. Mm -hmm. And we also have the resource of, of continuing to have a platform for support if you want it. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, those are the kinds of things that we can do. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's our mission and it's our duty mm -hmm. to do those things. So I want to put a bug in your ear about collaborating with Don Rowe and the folks in the city of St. Sure, Louis Department of Planning well. <laughs> um, about the Wells Goodfellow. I've, I've come to really fall in love with that place and would just love to see it stand up. And so, Linda, what this makes me think of for you is that a few years ago, I was working on a project in Clarksdale, Mississippi, also known as the Crossroads of the Blues. And But I would always come through Memphis and would always make sure that I had time to spend in Memphis. Because for me, Memphis is a place that when you get off the plane, you can feel it in the airport that this is a different place, right? That there's something special and unique about this city. And when you spend time in the city, it's everywhere, right? That history, that culture is everywhere. And I know that in the Mississippi Delta, those blues towns that come straight south of, of Memphis are trying to reclaim their blues history as a path for economic development and revitalization of some really depressed communities in the Mississippi Delta. Is that a strategy? Is it workable? Is it feasible in Memphis to continue to reclaim that blues, jazz, gospel history and the art and culture that were so prominent and that came out of Memphis? Can that be a driver for revitalization? And is it a driver? I mean, I believe so, because my whole work, my whole being, if, if I said no, then I should leave right now. <laughs> because... <laughs> I believe that arts and culture can actually transform 
and be, and be part of a neighborhood's revitalization, a community's revitalization, and in the case of Memphis, a city's revitalization. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I do believe it has to be done in an equitable way and an inclusive manner, because there are many times where in this work, and I know we could talk a lot about this, there's a lot of cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of co-opting mm -hmm. of stories and narratives. Mm -hmm. And if we can do it in an inclusive and equitable manner so that there's an economic benefit to those communities mm -hmm. that are most organic, relevant, authentic in terms of the blues? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But what I find many times is when cities or other people think about that, many times it's about, they'll call it branding. Right. But the very communities that really created it or the birthplace of those, yep. of that particular art, actually doesn't really benefit from it. And yeah. that's where I say no. Yeah. But if those communities can benefit from it, absolutely. So we have just a few minutes left, and I swear I could spend all <laughs> morning talking to you all about this. These are issues that really resonate with my soul. Being from Harlem, this issue of cultural appropriation mm -hmm. and capturing the history so that you can make sure that successive generations even know the history of the physical place where they are, and so many don't. Right. They see this disinvestment. They see this blight. They see a community on the downswing, but they don't know what it was like when it was really thriving and flying high and people were coming from all over the world to those places. Exactly. Right. And, and we have to make sure that we're retelling those stories, but also giving them the touchstones. This happened. My father used to take me on walks in Harlem and show me where Billie Holiday performed and where Duke Ellington lived when he lived in Harlem. And, you know, it was just there, you know, and but he could transmit that to me. But who is left to do that translation? Right. And telling that story. So in our last few minutes, I we want to ask you what we call the lightning round question. So I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to answer with the first thing that pops into your head. So the first question is, if you could advocate for one policy to advance community revitalization from the arts and culture space, what would it be? I'd have to say equity and funding. Equity and funding. That's a biggie. Yep. I agree. Equity and funding. I mean, that's what I do all the time. Every day, my work is about equity and funding. What could an individual, one person who's listened to this podcast and say, you know, what they're saying really resonates with me. What could I do to contribute to the work that you guys are doing, you ladies are doing? I, I think political involvement is really important. And I think political involvement for artists is really important. I think artists need to say, we belong at every table. Hmm. I think, you know, I, I really do. And I think black artists in particular need to say, I have a creative mind and I need to be at this table. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's what I'm hoping will happen is that that particularly in this time period, that the people with mm -hmm. creative juices will, will be able to say, you know, I have the power, I have the training, I have the wherewithal to be effective. I think people can realize that basically connecting with their inner artist and realizing that they're all creatives. And just because you're not out there painting every day or playing an instrument every day, that you too are an artist. Right now, I actually host a podcast called Artivism. So <laughs> understanding that people can work at the intersection of art and social activism. And then lastly, if you're both successful in what you're doing, what will art and culture placemaking look like 30 years from now? 
I would say 30 years from now, the pilot neighborhood where I'm working, Orange Mound, Tennessee, will look like it did in the 70s, where the population of African-Americans who lived there was second only to Harlem. Hmm. Wow. Extraordinary. That's a wonderful image. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to second that for the Ville, actually. <laughs> and and that the, the neighborhoods, they may not come back the way they were, because that may not be possible, mm-hmm. but that we have the imagination to reimagine them, to understand that there might be something amazing and new that can happen, mm-hmm. that's creative and, and can be a source of creativity and innovation and, and a place people want to live. Well, ladies, I, I mean from the bottom of my heart, I could talk to you about this for hours. Both places, both mm-hmm. cities really resonate with us, and we just really want to lift you up for the work that you're doing. And thank you for taking some time out of your conference experience to participate in this podcast with us and to thank our audience for listening. I know you all are going to be hanging on for dear life. So why don't you say where people can reach you for further information? Absolutely. So the Regional Arts Commission's um, website is racstl.org, and you can email me directly at rosean at at racstl.org. And Linda? Well, ARTUP is just about to launch, so you'll be able to reach us at artup.org, and you'll hear about us on the Artivism podcast, which is also produced by Arda. So thank you, Roseanne. Thank you, Linda. Thank thank you, you. our audience listeners, for tuning in once again to the Infinite Earth Radio podcast. And we hope you will continue to subscribe via iTunes and or Stitcher and be a part of this growing, burgeoning, dynamic conversation with extraordinary people like Linda and Roseanne. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.